I think everybody has this idea of failure, but nobody knows what it is. There's this stereotype in Hollywood that there's, there's every, every other waiter you meet is like has a screenplay on the side, every real estate agent's writing something on the side, and in truth, like that, that's reality. Uh, a lot of people come here with big Hollywood dreams and want to write that great screenplay. I know something's missing, but I don't know what it is. And I know a lot of writers who feel that way, and it's a really terrible feeling. It may be perfectly formatted in industry standard, it may have some interesting characters here and there. It may have some great dialogue. It may have some interesting plot points. And you get to the end, it could all have been crap. Even, even though that one sentence pitch they sent me was a good idea. One of the key skill sets in addition to creative integration is to build the right in compelling conflict. And compelling conflict is what takes great characters and great dialogue and just makes it pop off the page. It's just it's hard to explain, but you have a you have a visceral experience when you read. You can read. You look, you read some stuff. It's just bad, and then you read some stuff, and it's got some great moments and some great characters or dialogue, but it's nothing really happening. Then you read some stuff, and it's it's good. Things are happening, and it's interesting. But then you read something, and it just pops off the page. It just pop, you can tell. I was a studio reader, and I could tell within one page if someone knew what they were doing, if it popped off the page or not. Now, if that one page was great, I don't know if they could write a, a whole script. I have to keep reading, but if that one page didn't pop, I knew they couldn't. And yeah, if I had a class of about 20 people, they're usually about two people and their writing just sort of popped off the page more than others. They didn't, didn't know why necessarily, but everyone could tell. And I think they could tell. They would often not say anything. It's like in a writing group, there's usually one person whose writing just is better than everyone else's or in an MFA program. It just, maybe people don't know why, but it does. What I've learned is it's because they're writing in compelling conflict. And I find that about 5% of the writers that come to work with me naturally do that. I don't have to teach them. It just has that popping off the page. And about 5% sort of do that. And the other 90% are anywhere from they need some work to they, they, they suck at it. They just suck at it. But you can teach people how to do it. So a great example is Neil Simon, the playwright. He has a book called Rewrites, which is his autobiography. And he talks about like year after year when he was a younger man, he'd write these plays and he loved the characters and, and, and everyone thought they were hysterically funny, but they, there was just something missing. It just didn't hold together. It just wasn't interesting enough. And over time, he's like, I know something's missing, but I don't know what it is. And I know a lot of writers who feel that way. And it's a really terrible feeling. He eventually did the one thing he never wanted to do is he went to his older brother who was a really successful writer. And his older brother read his stuff and said, you're not writing in compelling conflict. And Neil Simon's like, what are you talking about? What is this? And he said, my older brother taught me what it was. And then the light bulb went off. And so then he said, I would just structure my compelling conflicts and then pour in all the character and comedy. And that's how he did his career. Um, David Mamet, um, and this is on my website or you can look online. Um, he did a, um, a memo uh, about a decade ago or so to the writers of the unit, his TV show. And he basically said, you will learn how to write in compelling conflict or you'll be in the blanking unemployment line or the bread line. And there was a lot of F-bombs in this memo, but he was basically saying, this is not a natural skill set for most people. You will learn to do this or you will not survive. And so I didn't know it at the time, and, and to go back to your question, actually, the, the, for the truth of my experience was the 18 people whose stuff wasn't popping off the page, 
they weren't, I wasn't able to get them there. And so I, like a lot of teachers, and I talk to teachers at UCLA and other film schools, and they'll say this privately, I don't know, they'll say this publicly, it's like, yeah, when you teach a class, you're teaching for that one or two person or people who have what it takes, the rest don't. But look, they have a dream, support them, be encouraging, don't tell them that they don't have what it takes, they'll figure it out. And then when they figure it out, they will give up this dream and they'll find the dream that they have the talent for because not everyone could be a world-class chef. Not everyone could be a professional athlete. And so we teach for that one or two that have what it takes. And for the rest, we don't tell them that they don't have what it takes. We could be wrong, but they'll figure it out. And that's a real fixed mindset way of approaching this. And one of the books that changed my life as a teacher is Mindset by Carol Dweck. I make all my students read it. It's the only thing I make them read. She talks about the fixed mindset and the growth mindset. And the growth mindset is, okay, these two people who their stuff's popping off the page, why? What skills, what talent do they have that other people don't have? And the growth mindset says talent is repeatable skill sets. And maybe you're born with them. Maybe you develop them through nurture and childhood. Or maybe you learn them as an adult. It doesn't matter how you acquire them. It's just a skill set that's repeatable, as opposed to luck. So a repeatable skill set is, you know, you learn how to drive a car and you can drive, now you can always drive a car, ride a bike. And so they have the people that pop off the page, they have certain skill sets, certain tools that other people don't. You can figure out what those are, compelling conflict, and then you can figure out how to teach compelling conflict. Then you can teach those skill sets to other people and they can learn that talent. And with, so, I, I, have, I had a writer that come, came to me, his name's Gary, and he had a manager, and he was always taking meetings, but he could never sell anything, he could never get hired. He felt like he was that close to a career for five years. And then at some point, you're like, okay, this, something's not here, something's not working. So he came to me, deeply intuitive writer. Um, the, he wrote the most amazing characters and dialogue. I didn't... All I taught him on that front was don't change what you're doing. <laughs> you know, like you're amazing. Just keep doing that. Don't let anyone interfere with that. But on the conceptual side, you've got some real weaknesses. And him specifically was escalations, how to keep making things get strong, like keep making things worse and worse in an organic way. That was his. So he was an easy case in that he had everything but one skill set. He was really missing one skill set. So I gave him those training exercises, and then unbeknownst to me, when I was done with that class, he spent the next three months doing those training exercises every day for four hours. I didn't know that. That's a growth mindset guy. That's a guy who's like, I want to become an expert at this skill set that I naturally am terrible at. And at the end of those three months, he was as good at that as a natural conceptual writer is good at that. He was just as good at that as anyone. He now has a movie come that, uh, I think it's released in the fall starring, um, uh, what's her name? Um, anyway, not Reese Witherspoon, but someone like, anyway, he has a movie that, that come out. He has Great. team of C agents. He sold two TV pilots and he had everything but that one skill set. Now at the same time, I've worked with writers who are great at escalations and, and great at big concepts, but their characters and dialogue, it's just like, these are puppets. And through the intuitive training, they could come out the other end where their characters and dialogue are just as good as these people who are naturally 
great. So the key is you have natural talents and then there's talents that you don't have or you're not that strong at. If you train the right way, you can, if you're willing to put the time and effort in the right way, you can end up being just as talented as someone who's naturally that way. And that's the growth mindset. So for years, I honestly, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but for years I would teach a class and I'd come home, my wife say how it goes. I go, these two people I think could have careers. The rest of them, not so much. And over time, usually those two people would go on to have careers and none of the others. And I'm like, well, I teach for those two people. I encourage everyone else because you never know, but probably going to find out they don't have what it takes. When I changed this approach and it took a long time and all effort, I remember I had a class where there, it was only 10 people. There was one person who you could tell how to take the other nine. No. And within four years, one of those nine people dropped out because of long story. So that left eight. And of that eight, six of them went on to got careers. And I wasn't a smarter or more dynamic or I wasn't a better teacher than prior. I just had a different teaching approach. And it was the approach that was radically different. This whole creative integration skill set thing approach. So it took me years and a lot of help from other people. I didn't just invent all this myself. But that's the really cool thing about talent. And is that it's repeatable skill sets and you can learn these skill sets and you can develop them if you know how to train yourself and you're willing to put the time and energy into it. Probably the number one reason why we find problems in screenplays is that it was the wrong writer for that story, for that project. Uh, it's amazing how people will sign up for something that they're ill-equipped to do you know, from a whole, for several different senses, right? So the first sense uh, of being the wrong writer for the project is just that this project is too technical for your skill level. So this happens a lot with people's passions projects where they have this dream movie that they've wanted to write since they were seven, but they, and then they, they start to learn screenwriting and they start on that movie. And no, that should be like your fifth movie or your maybe your third movie, but certainly not your first one. Uh, and so, so there's just this, the first level is just, you're not good enough yet to take on a project of that scope. Maybe it's too many characters, it's too complex in its story. The, uh, the, uh, the structure is just gonna require more from the, you than you're able to give. So, uh, and then the second, an another part of that is sometimes uh, it's gonna require a lot of research from you that you're just not uh, able to commit to, especially if you're learning your craft. People tend to, to be focused on learning the craft and not have time you know, to go off to the Yukon to research you know, how Eskimos uh, you know, make whale meat or something. You know, like that, that kind of weird uh, complexity that uh, in a story uh, in terms of research is the wrong project to start with. So a research-heavy project shouldn't be your first project. A very technical project with a lot of characters, an ensemble piece, shouldn't be your first project. So from, a, from one level, uh, that, that you, know, you have to measure the projects you take on according to the skill set you have, and as it grows, the projects can be more complex. I mean, just think of it like any other uh, skill-based craft. If you're an architect, you don't build your skyscraper first. You know, you, you start with a doghouse, you, you build a garage, uh, and then you work your way up. So one of the reasons writers, uh, we see writers set themselves up to fail technically, because they're just, they haven't really assessed the needs of the project and their own uh, craft level. And another way that writers 
um, tend to fail in this area is they're taking on projects that aren't truly theirs to take on. And uh, any story is, is organically um, just in, ingrained in the heart and the mind and the soul of the writer. And a writer really needs to know himself and know what kinds of stories he's uniquely designed to tell. And, and stick with those things. And sometimes, especially when it's a job, it's, um, you know, the temptation is there to, to jump on that idea and say, yes, I want to do that. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know anything about Eskimos, but I can learn by gum. And, but if, if, if that's a story that, where they have no context and no, not only just personal experience, but something that really doesn't speak to their heart or their mind or their soul, um, then they're not the right person for that story. And, and the best stories come from uh, writers who can combine their own passions, their own interests, their, their, the, the stories that really speak to them and who they are as human beings. And they're able to tie in those themes that they're grappling with and wrestling with as people, as human beings, and then apply that to the story or to the project. And, and that's a great segue to the third wrong reason that I, or reason that a script would be wrong for somebody. And it has to do with emotional maturity. So, you know, if your theme is going to be, you know, something very gritty and intense uh, emotionally or psychologically, you got to be ready to go there. Um, and travel into that dark place, perhaps, and uh, and be you know uh, you know live it. And and a lot of writers just aren't. I had an experience once with a project uh, where uh, it was about a mother daughter thing, and I think we tell the story in the book where uh, the producer said to the writer, "You're just not going there." Uh, in this scenes between the mother and daughter, the tension, and it turned out the writer had real mother daughter issues, mm -hmm. and she was afraid to go into that place. So they kept trying to get her to go there, and she just wouldn't because she was afraid what her mother would think, you know. But she's also afraid to, to you know, she needed therapy before she could yeah, write that yeah, movie, yeah. you know. Well, and conversely, some writers are so there that they can't turn it into a story, mm -hmm. and and that's the other side of the coin is that sometimes writers need to pull back from personal experience mm -hmm. um, and I you know when we when we consult with writers a lot of them say well this really happened to me yeah, we want to and we're like no we, we need to tell <laughs> a story with a beginning middle and end here yeah. you know and, and mm -hmm. many of our own personal stories don't resolve that same yeah. way you need to be able to show people that you can do what you say you can do um, and if you're just a screenwriter then that means writing a really kick-ass script and putting it in front of somebody and making the first page so good that they have to keep reading to page five and making the first five pages so good they have to keep reading to page ten and making the first ten pages so good that they never put it down until they get to the last page and they have to pick up the phone and call you as soon as they're done that's how good your script has to be and it can't be that good that you can't think it's that good all your friends have to read it and think holy shit this is the best thing I've ever read. Can I say that on your? Yeah, please. We're on the internet, right? Yeah, yeah, please. We'll, we'll and, censor it for the ratings. Okay, and uh, and then your friends have to show it to their friends, and people who don't even know you have to read this and think this is the best thing I've ever read. I can't wait to see this on television or in the movies. And when you have a script that's getting that kind of reaction from your friends, then you can walk into somebody's door and say here this is what I can do read this and you will hire me and you'll have that confidence to go into the room and exude that 
And if you have that confidence, people will read that first page. If you walk into somebody's office and you feel that way about your material, and you know without a shadow of a doubt that this is a great script, that gets across to people, and they'll read your first page. But if your first page is amateurishly written, they're going to stop right there. Somebody sent me a great idea, and it was one of the few times uh, in the last year where somebody contacted me, said, hey, I have this idea for a movie. I've written a script. Would you read it? And the, the, the pitch, uh, which they actually broke the rules, and they sent me the pitch in the very first email so that I had, you know, I would have had to stop reading and, you know, to not have been exposed to the idea. And fortunately, it was not an idea I already had. Um, but it was an interesting idea. And so I said, sure, send me the script. And, you know, we did a release form, and they sent me the script. And I, I got the script, and I was really excited to read it. And the first page, I opened it up, and it wasn't even formatted properly. Um, and I read the first page, and, and they weren't writing in proper sentences. And I had to slog through this thing to figure out what they were trying to say. And I gave up after a couple of pages because they just, they'd abused me, basically. They'd stolen my time, they'd wasted my time on something that wasn't a professional product that could never be produced in its current state. And maybe if I had forced myself to read the whole script, there would have been a, a nugget in there that was a great idea. And with some work, you know, I could have pounded the script into shape and tried to do something with it. But who has that time? And who knows? You could get to the end of this 120-page script. It takes you two hours out of a very busy day. And you get to the end, and it could all have been crap, even, even though that one-sentence pitch they sent me was a good idea. So you got to be sure. And you can't just read it yourself and think it's great. Other people have to be telling you it's great. In my experience as a script consultant, 99% of writers um, fail to tell a story. That what the 99% do instead is I would describe as present a situation. Um, so they pay me good money as a script consultant to come in and read their script. It may be perfectly formatted in industry standard. It may have some interesting characters here and there. It may have some great dialogue. It may have some interesting plot points. Um, but invariably, I was discovering 99% of the time, they were failing to tell a story. Um, instead, they were presenting a situation. So, um, you know, one way that I can describe it, a situation is it's like life, where in life, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And that's not a story, right? That's episodic. Um, a story, there's a connection where between the parts, this happens, which leads to that happening which makes it ironic when this other thing happens. Uh, there's a connection between the parts. Uh, another way I can put it is if I can take your protagonist out of your script and put a completely different one in, and maybe with a couple of tweaks, it works just as well. You have a situation, my friend, not a story. Interesting. I shouldn't be able to do that. If you're telling a story, if I were to take your protagonist out, it would no longer work. A story is unique to your protagonist. There's something, there's a unique journey, a reason why you, the master of the universe here, has put this character on this path. 
There's something in that character that you've chosen to do this particular plot in order to bring out something in them. And so if I can put just another character in and it works just as well, that's not a situation. That's not testing anything specific to the character. It's just an arbitrary situation that you put a character, you put someone into. And that's what most people do. I mean, that's the way a lot of us start. It's, it's not, you know, I don't mean to, um, it, it doesn't mean that it's not a fixable situation. Um, and that's why my method is why I have these on a form so that we can see visually right there and then, oh yeah, this, is, this piece is working, but you can see this piece doesn't work. We can isolate these elements and we can fix them looking at this one page form. And it's way easier to do it on this one page form than if you've already written the screenplay, then it's gonna be a bit more of a mess. Um, we can still use the form, but it's gonna, be, it's gonna mean going back a little bit to the drawing board in order to fix those parts in order to make it into a powerful story. Every screenwriter, every filmmaker should know Tootsie, right? If you haven't seen awesome. it, you, we have to go see it. It's a great movie to look structurally. Uh -huh. This is what is exactly what's happening. 99% um, of writers are writing what I call fat Tootsie. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. This is fat Tootsie. I'm gonna take the same movie, Tootsie. We have a protagonist, Michael Dorsey, out of work actor, right? can't get an acting job right. and he's desperate for an acting job. And so he's going to audition for the soap opera. And I'm going to make two very small changes um, to the plot is he's going to audition for the soap opera in disguise. But what it is, the part isn't a, a female character. The part is going to be a male character, but the character is an obese man in the fictional um, soap opera world. So the town that the soap opera takes place in. So Michael Dorsey, is desperate for an acting job, right? So he's gonna go to his makeup artist friend to have prostheses made and a costumer to make him a fat suit. And he's gonna go into the audition pretending that he's actually an obese man. And he's gonna get the part. So we have exact same movie, Michael Dorsey, out of work actor, desperate for an acting job, gets a part on a soap opera. The only thing I'm gonna change is instead of the part being a female character, it's the part of a fat man, right? Very similar movie almost works, right? We tend to think it's funny seeing a, a man dress up an, as a woman in movies. We also could find it funny seeing this little, you know, guy like Dustin Hoffman pretending to be a big fat guy, right? Mm. He's got to get in and out of his fat suit, you know, before anyone sees him. Um, it almost works. But ultimately, fat Tootsie is a situation, not a story. You have any idea what the difference might be? Trying to forgive me. It's been a, it's been yeah. a little bit since I've seen it. I, I'm just remembering like when he is Tootsie that you know there's like this sort of where someone falls in love with him and there's this like dilemma mm -hmm. like how to like how does he tell him that he's a man he can he's got to keep this cover. So what would be? Yeah, and I could even tweak it though where uh -huh. that wasn't an issue where in in it he, he gets a um, crush on his female co-star. Right. right, the, right. I'll make another tweak though for Fat Tootsie. Okay, he'll tell his co-star that he's gay. So fat, so she, Julie, the love interest, feels just as comfortable with him, uh, her co-star, who she perceives as this gay fat man, right? She feels just as comfortable with him as she felt with the Dorothy character, the female persona. So still, almost works, right? We have the exact same thing. And then for the love interest, because he's, um, he says he's gay, 
part of the real uh, in the movie the to in Tootsie that his uh, Julie's father gets a crush on the Dorothy character. Right. But we'll make Dor we'll make Julie's father gay. Right. <laughs> so that could work. So it's still working the same. I'm, you stumped me yeah. there. I'm, I want to well, hear I've stumped a lot of people. <laughs> this is the key to that. This is key. And let me tell you, 99% of writers are writing fat Tootsie. It's a clever sounding situation, but it's not a story. The key, the big difference is one of the, the biggest structural, and this is one of the eight elements, but it's the most important element, is the flaw. That there's something in this journey that you've chosen in the plot you've created, that you put this character in, that's going to test a central flaw in them. Um, any idea what Michael Dorsey's flaw might be? Well, um, I guess he's, he's struggling with his career. Yeah. Mm -hmm. he's Yeah, but a flaw is something we can blame them for. So something we oh. look at them, you look down upon them. So what would you say is, what is a negative about him that we're judging, we can judge him about? A You're lot. kind of in the ballpark, though. It has to, it's related to his career. Right. Lack of confidence, lack of skill. Maybe he's not honing. I don't know, going after yeah. the wrong parts. He has a different, an overinflated view of himself, underinflated. I don't know. Well, I think most people point out the overinflated view, that he's very, very arrogant, mm -hmm. right? That he is, that's, you know, um, one of the reasons he hasn't been getting acting work is because he's so difficult to work with. And the only thing is, I would argue, after the movie Tootsie, do you think this guy's going to be any less arrogant on his next acting job? No, because he yeah. was able to pull it off. Right. And so now he has a supreme Exactly. Offense. Yeah. Exactly. So that hasn't he has that is one of his flaws, arrogance. It's not the one that the movie's testing. The one that the movie's testing is his lack of respect for women. Ah, okay. Right? So we see in the beginning this early scene at this party, he hits on every single woman with the same stupid line. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Even though I think he'd probably call himself a feminist, um, <laughs> he's actually a real jerk to women, right? He's, you know, he's great friends with the Terry Gar character, and but the moment they sleep together, he suddenly freaks out and treats her, treats her terribly. Um, so deep down, he has this lack of respect for women. That is the perfect test of somebody who has a lack of respect for women, if you make them have to pretend to be a woman. Interesting. Right? But in fact, Tootsie, that has nothing to do with his flaw. It's an arbitrary situation we've put him in. So unless we were to change the flaw, if we made the flaw, you know, somebody who had a, a prejudice against people, um, you know, of different weight or, or different appearance, something like that, we could do, we could, we could change the character so it was testing someone. But with the character that's in the original Tootsie of this man who's arrogant and doesn't respect women, putting him in a fat suit, that doesn't do anything to test that character. Right. So that's what 99% of writers are doing. It sounds clever, right? It sounds interesting to see somebody, you know, he's trying to pretend, it seems to be, has some interesting themes about being someone, who, trying to pretend to be someone who you're not. We've got some funny comedy moments, um, ideas in there. It has nothing to do with the character. Right, and he gets hit on, and I remember the one yeah. scene where they're like, can you guys back up the camera? And right. they're like, how far can we go? Right. You know? So he's being judged for his looks, mm -hmm. he's being hit on, all these different things. All these things right, that he right. does uh -huh. that he doesn't even realize he's doing. Right. Right? He does, even in the movie, in the, in, in, you know, in that second act, he still doesn't realize it, um, you know, that he's been doing these things all along. And it's, it's, there's a great moment where the, the sexist director turns things around and says something about the fact that that you know, he's the sexist director has been dating Julie, and um, the 
his Michael's Dorothy persona is kind of suggests I know what's going on, and and the director says, yeah, I, yeah, you know, yeah, sure, I see other women, but I I wouldn't want to tell her, I wouldn't want to hurt her, right? And Michael Dorsey's used that exact same line talking about Terry Gar. Right. Of course, you know, I don't want to hurt her, right? So he doesn't even realize he's doing these things. Sure. So this is the way. This is the way we're going to get the character to finally face something. So another important concept about this is that your character's not a victim. Michael Dorsey's not a victim of the universe suddenly making him have to be a woman and deal with that. He actually asked for this. He wanted an acting part. He said he could handle this. He said, I'll take, you know, I'll do anything. I'll do any acting job. He willingly went in there and auditioned for this. Um, so this is another part of the 99%. They're making their character a victim of circumstance. They're having arbitrary stuff happen to the character. It shouldn't be. Um, your character should not be a victim. Even if your character is a, a victim, um, for them truly to be a protagonist, they, they need to have a certain amount of agency involved. They need to be contributing to the problem in some way. If you don't give your character a strong flaw, you're just making them a victim. The, all, the reason these bad things are happening to them are just fate. It's just bad luck in the world. It shouldn't be that. Um, that might be part of it, but it needs to be part of, you know, why it's so difficult for Michael Dorsey and Tootsie is the fact that he's sexist. If he weren't a sexist guy, he wouldn't have been having a difficult time in Act Two of Tootsie. Um, so uh, what we're doing is that we're making sure that we're testing the character with something um, that is getting something, getting down at something deep down inside of them that's unique to them, and, and and that's why this character exists in this story instead of another character. I think most people fail at screenwriting because it's the most difficult craft in the world. You know, people talk about, oh, I want to be a director. Well, directing is a very difficult, challenging job, but it doesn't compare to writing. Craft of storytelling, most complex craft in the world, takes a lifetime commitment to master it. Now, a lot of writers either don't realize that it's going to take a lifetime of commitment or they don't want to face a lifetime of commitment because that's a lot of work and that's a lot of time. Most writers are looking for the magic bullet and which is why I talk about this in my class all the time. Most writers start off with this three-act structure way of looking at storytelling which is, was designed for beginners and does not work at the professional level. The reason it's so popular is because it is a kind of magic bullet. It says, oh, it's not that hard. Well, we'd all like to think that writing a successful screenplay can be done with a few simple steps, you know, paint-by-numbers approach. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. You have to be able to put in the work. And you have to also realize that the level of training, the type of training that's required to get to, to a level of excellence. And that means literally hundreds of craft techniques that have to be mastered. I will always tell writers in my class, you know, plot is the most underestimated of all the major writing skills. Most writers 
know the importance of a good main character, they know the importance of lean dialogue and so on. But when it comes to plot, they think, well, I'll just figure that out as I go. And of course that never happens because it turns out that plot has more techniques that must be mastered to become a working professional than all of the other major writing skills combined. If you don't know what those techniques are, you have really no chance of working at that level. So that's why I say that it's so important to writers to get, not just get training, but to get the right kind of training so that they are working at the professional level. And one of the, what I think, one of the key hallmarks of what I've tried to, to teach in all of my classes is that professionally, professional writers use fundamentally different techniques than all other writers. If you don't know what those professional techniques are, you cannot play in that game. You cannot compete at that level. You're absolutely right. I, I consider the psychological element the biggest obstacle to writer success because the difficulty of what you just said, the difficulty of facing the page by yourself, being in that room alone, trying to meet that challenge day in and day out, is very difficult on the human mind. And writers, first of all, don't realize what it's going to take psychologically at first. And then when they get into it and they try to deal with that, they, they really don't have the tools or the support system to be able to be in it for the long haul. I often tell writers, the, 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 the people who work professionally, are the people who are still standing. You know, everybody else was, they were knocked out because for various reasons, they didn't get the right training, but, but most often it's, they cannot handle the psychological difficulty of what it takes to write at the professional level, meaning writing alone, facing rejection again and again over many years and so on until you have mastered the craft at the, at the level that somebody says, hey, you're a good writer, this is a good script, I'm gonna hire you. So it's the people who A, commit to the craft, and B, who are still standing, who are there after many years, so that finally somebody says, yeah, you've done the work, you're actually pretty good. Because keep in mind, most people don't know a good story. They don't, you know, they just know, I like it or I didn't like it. But they're not trained as writers. Again, it's the most complex craft in the world. So part of the difficult psychology is how do you get over the fact that you're getting rejected from people who don't know what you do? That's very tough to face. Maintaining an openness to learning the craft. I will often get professional writers to take my class. And when I talk to them, what I always find is these people have no ego, at least no ego that, that is coming across that I can see. Because they're professional writers. So you would think, well, they, they think I already know this stuff. But they don't. They don't take that attitude. Yes, they're extremely well-trained. If they get to the level of a professional writer, they're extremely well-trained. But these are people who are open to learning more. 
And I find that is the most important quality for being a successful writer. The, being, the willingness to learn from anywhere, anyone, so that your repertoire, your, your arsenal, your set of tools is constantly growing. That, in turn, gives you the confidence to say, that person didn't like my script, but I know that it is based on these craft elements that make for a good story. So whether they liked it or not, that doesn't affect me. I know it's a good story. That's where you get the foundation of confidence that you need to get through those tough psychological moments. And it's a huge problem. You know, the, the, when I give classes, the most common question is all about how do I sell my script? They would, now, there's an implication in that question, which is, I already know how to write a good script. The only thing I'm not able to do is sell it. Not so. 99% of writers, you know, they will always talk in Hollywood about it. It's all about the connection. It's all about who you know. That's so overrated. 99% of writers, when they finally meet somebody who is a useful connection, they don't have the story tools to make that connection pay off. They don't have the craft foundation. So it's all about, you know, this, this ability to treat writing as a profession. And part of that is I, I can never know enough about how this craft works. And partly that's because every story is different. I'm, I talk to professional writer friends and we're always amazed. We think, okay, it's going to get easier now. It doesn't. It gets harder. Because the better you get, the higher you set the bar for yourself on your script. Every cracking a story is always hard, no matter how much you know, because every story is totally unique. Yeah, there's certain elements that you can use that you can hang your hat on, you can, you can get a, a way into the story and so on, but everyone is tough. So that's why this, this having this professional approach to being a writer, being a storyteller, is so important. It's the only thing that, that A, makes you successful, but B, gets you through. I think everybody has this idea of failure, but nobody knows what it is, right? I'm gonna fail, and it's gonna, I'm gonna go down in flames, and you know you're not. The only failure in screenwriting is A, not writing. I wrote a script five years ago. I'm running around with this one script. I haven't touched a typewriter or computer since then for any creative purposes. That is screenwriting failure, not writing new content, not generating new content, harping on old content, not getting notes. Huge, huge, huge in the failure of, of things. If you are tunnel visioned and this is how it has to be and anything short of this, as I saw it on the page, arrives on the screen, then it will be my failure. You will fail in that because this is, while writing a solitary, this is a highly collaborative industry. So the road to failure is not writing, not writing new material, not getting notes, wanting to be perfect. There is no perfection in this industry. 
it is all about getting notes, learning from notes, getting notes that you hate, figuring out what to do with them, um, because other people's are, people are going to have to buy in. So the road to failure is really being stunted. It's always thinking that it can be better. And you know, most work can be better. But there is a point of diminishing returns, right? There is a point where you are just switching around your wordsmithing and you're really, the returns are, you improve it by a percent, by half of a percent. That's not gonna do it. So when is the work ready? When is it strong enough? When do you believe in your work? And a lot of writers feel very, very confident writing, but not confident at all getting the work out there. So at some point you have to understand, okay, this is what it is. This is what I wanted it to be. I'm a big believer in feedback. So getting f feedback from people that you trust, um, who have some experience and knowledge in the industry, be they other working writers or consultants like Michael Haig or Jen Grisanti that you've talked to, um, or script readers that are known for being really hard on the work. When they say, you know what, it's good, get it out there. At some point you have to let go. At some point you have to say, yeah, I can futz with it forever. And you can, I promise you that you can. And I've seen writers do it. And I've had fights with writers who've done it, who just would harp on the same script. You have to accept it for the potential that it has. You have to question whether or not you've realized that potential. Did you do what you wanted to do with the script? Did you write the story that you wanted to tell? Is it being received in the manner that you wanted it to be received? So are people getting it? Are they connecting with it? Are they enthused by it? If the answers to that is yes, then you get it out there. As much as rejection is part of the job, and it is part of the job, you are going to get rejected, and so you better grow it or develop a tougher skin. You will be rejected, get it out there. The point is to get that yes, and you have to get through a lot of no's to get that yes. But you have to get the world out, the work out there. It does no good for you on the shelf. It does no good for you sitting on the computer without anybody seeing it. Of course you want to scrutinize that the work is up to par, right? You, you want to make sure that the work is strong and you're getting the feedback that it's strong enough for people that, who don't have to be nice to you. Um, and that's a really big thing. So it can't just be your friends who are concerned about maintaining a friendship, right. um, who are going to be a little bit more forgiving because they understand your intention. They know what you went for. You didn't quite get there, but they saw it enough. Um, but people who will scrutinize your work and be demanding of it are telling you, it's good, get it out there. Get it out there. That's how you build a career. You don't build a career with one script that you're precious about. You build a career writing great script after great script and getting people, getting a fan base that's excited about you, that's excited to read the next thing, that knows that the next thing is coming and want to be the first on the list to get it from you. Look, it's, it's a really, it's a huge question to say, what should I write? And I, I, I do my best to answer that in the easiest way for new writers in my book. Um, and and I, I try to break that down the best I can, but I mean, it's, it's a really big question. Uh, and the thing I, I certainly don't want to see any screenwriters uh, run into is just feeling like they have to blindly guess. I, I try to answer that in the book, but if you don't have access to the book, um, the best advice I could give to a screenwriter is, yes, you can go to a Redbox machine, used to be Blockbuster, but those all turned into cell phone stores. Um, you can go to Redbox machine, look at the independent films on there. So independent would be the, the family titles at the bottom, look for the live action ones, usually with a dog or an animal on them. Um, and then also look at the big studio films that are kind of, you know, throughout the machine you'll see them in different spots. Whatever a big studio film is, look to the ones that are like right next to that. 
or get on Netflix and find a big studio movie in, in the lineup and then look at the independent movie you've never heard of that's next to it. That's the independent Hollywood zone. That's where I work. Those are the scripts that we're in need of. That's, that's where I think you're going to get your best indicator as to the genres that work, the genre themes you're going to see, uh, the number of cast members, the, all that information. And another source you can do is if you have writing experience, if you have a couple of screenplays you're confident in that you think uh, are interesting for Hollywood, uh, I would call up uh, development agents, creative executives. Um, I would, you, you can find their information in several different sources, LinkedIn or, or any platform like that is a great way to kind of kickstart it. Uh, but contact them and basically say, I'm interested in writing a script. Uh, what works and if it's interesting to you, could I write a treatment and present it to you and then write it for you? You know, you could do that as a, as a scenario and just go direct to the source and write something for them. I mean, I think that's actually the, the big question a lot of newbie writers have is, how do you get from point A to point B? My whole reasoning for the book was answering that question the best I could. That's information I certainly didn't have about the movie business when I left film school. Um, nobody really tells you how to bridge that gap of, okay, I, I don't know anybody. How do I build a career out of anything? Uh, producers in Hollywood knows, they already know what sell. Creative executives in Hollywood, they know what sell. They all have really great ideas. Another way to do it is go try to talk to them and say, look, I, I want to write scripts. Um, I'm looking to connect with somebody who knows what sells. I'll write whatever script you want me to write. Uh, you lead the way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways you could, I guess, uh, really figure out what's going to get you some attention. It's definitely worth a five-minute call. I think, I think uh, a, a true producer in Hollywood, somebody who's well-connected, a creative executive in Hollywood, if they're working for a company that you know they're comfortable with, but maybe they're not having that opportunity to work on the stuff that they want to, but they have all the connections you wish you had, um, that, that's a great link. And yes, if you went out to them and basically approached them and said, I have three scripts of this genre. Um, I would love to present them to you, and I'm not trying to get you to buy these scripts. Uh, if you're interested, fantastic, but I'm not trying to get you to buy these. I just I want to work with somebody and develop something from scratch. You're a creative executive. You know what sells. You have contacts, and I'm sure you have story ideas that you just don't have time to put together. Let me be that you know, fix in your system, I'll get you the script you need, and then we can go hit the marketplace together. Uh, and that goes into faking confidence. That's a scary scenario to be in, but um, if, you, if you are able to approach that and basically present that kind of conversation, uh, you will actually see quite a few doors open and a lot of emails answered. Talent's important. I think likability is very important. I think uh, persistence and uh, the ability to work hard are the most important. I think likability gets the door open. Likability is a crucial factor in terms of just being able to walk your way into a scenario, get people to listen to you, uh, and take your ideas and your talent seriously. But that's, part of the, it's, that's the first part of the equation. It's the most important part of the first step of the equation. But once you have that opportunity presented to you, you have to follow through with a lot of hard work and uh, talent. Uh, you can, if you're not 100% confident in your own talent, and no artist ever is, um, the best, that's where faking t uh, confidence kind of comes, comes into play. There's sort of tricks and things you can do to sort of push things more in your favor. I outline that a bit in the book where I list out all the things that readers hate about spec scripts. 
and it's basically just a, an overview of everything that is a, is a turnoff to them. It's an indicator of a writer who just doesn't get what the system needs um, and, and why it's important not to have any of those elements. And they range from everything of uh, too many characters in your script uh, to grammatical errors and things like that. Very fixable things. But if you, if you make sure to get rid of as many of those, you're just weighing more odds in your favor of getting your script taken seriously. Out of all the spec scripts in Hollywood, the reason it's not made to fruition is just people writing the wrong thing. So it's it, it, so many, my view is this, it's like there's this stereotype in Hollywood that there's, there's every, every other waiter you meet is like has a screenplay on the side, every real estate agent's writing something on the side, and in truth, like that, that's reality. Uh, a lot of people come here with big Hollywood dreams and want to write that great screenplay. And people just kind of go, oh, well, you know, they're not talented, they're writing bad scripts. Certainly there's a lot of bad scripts, but at the same time, there's a lot of very talented people who just aren't writing the right things. So they're, they're not writing the right things, they're not writing what Hollywood needs, and they're not presenting their work in the way that it needs to be presented to get doors to open. So if they just shift a few of those elements, if they write what Hollywood needs, which are goldmine genres, as we outline in the book, if they, if they present their ideas in a way Hollywood needs to hear them, which is about pitching your story in a way that is, this is how my script helps your company, this is how my script uh, answers that, that need in the Hollywood system, uh, and then if you just kind of get yourself out there at the same time, like that's how you really do it. It's building, it's not, it's not selling a one-off script, it's building a career. I think those unknowns that get, you know, sell their very first script for six figures or seven figures and get a first look deal at a major studio, um, those are very rare. And if that does happen to a writer, you'll read about it in the trades. Um, it's, it's rare that that'll come across your desk and you'll be a part of that deal. I mean, it's, the percentages are so small of people that that happens to. Um, there are extremely talented writers out there that probably deserve that to happen, but it's just, it just really, unfortunately, doesn't happen. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to the connections that you have and, um, you know, it's about who you know. So, you know, having a great story is important. And like I said before, it, I think if you have a bulletproof script that people absolutely love, the chances of you getting it done are pretty high. But the chances of you getting all those other things as an unknown coming straight out of college or out of high school or whatever it is, or it being your first script are, are very rare. And so I didn't see those. I did, we did have um, one, we did take on a client who had recently graduated from um, USC and she had written a very compelling script about um, her experiences with 9-11 and uh, she had uh, just put together a, a very very fascinating package and it turned heads and we liked it and we talked about it at the agency and she got represented there but I don't think that that script ever got made I think it got a representation and that was big um, but, you know, she wasn't dealing with seven figures and, and all those other lucrative things. Dan, how many screenplays would you say over the course of your lifetime you've read? I Probably over a thousand. I'm not one of those people who's like, I've read five or six thousand. Dan, of the numerous scripts that you've read, how many would you say went on to become films? Uh, very few. It's very rare that they do. Um, it's hard for a script to get optioned or sold. 
and then it's even harder for it to get produced. So it's very rare and that's why I always say your script has to be great. It can't just be good, it has to be great. That's why I titled my first book, How to Write a Great Screenplay with Great in, in Caps. Because working as a reader and now as a writing coach, something really has to blow me away. And because it's so tough for it to rise up the ladder and become an option script, a sold script, a produced script. So you really have to come in with something with a unique voice with a unique approach to a commercially successful genre. It's really tough. Um, so I can't really put my finger on how many uh, became produced of scripts that I read, but it's few and far between. I was probably a bit more naive. I probably thought that more things rose up the ladder and got bought and greenlit and produced. But after a while, I realized, well, first things first, nine out of 10 scripts I would pass on, I would reject. So I got the sense right away that even though this was you know, on the professional level and these scripts were coming from agents and managers and producers, some had major stars attached, but the material just wasn't there. It just wasn't great. And so I would pass on most things, nine out of 10 things. So what was great was as a reader, I was always looking for that thing to say yes to, not to say no to, because it was so exhilarating when I found that one out of 10 or one out of 20 scripts that month that really blew me away and really brought it and excited me. And I was happy to give it a consider or a recommend on the coverage report. There's something called consider with reservations, which is this could be a great movie for my employer, but there's reservations about it. It would be really expensive. There's not a kind of star role in it. Um, it's too long, so it would need to be cut down, but we're considering it, that reader is considering it because it's great writing, you know? And now what's good about the consider with reservations or just the consider um, uh, level evaluation, which, cause there's pass, consider, recommend. Recommend is really high, recommend is like, this is not only great material, but this is ready and perfect for my employer. So this particular studio, this is right in their wheelhouse. It's right in the budget range, so I fully recommend that. Consider is a really good grade, and any writer should be excited to get a consider. And what it means is even if that particular piece of material isn't right for that production company or that studio, the writer is a good writer, and they may want to work with this writer on another project. So they may want to bring them in for a meeting, see if they're someone they could work with, and then maybe uh, give them an assignment, you know, like a rewrite assignment. I just, in general, I probably only gave a handful of recommends in eight, nine years. I mean, literally like five or six. In each case, I personally didn't know the writer. Like in one case, there was a book by, um, I didn't know his name at the time I was reading it, but it turns out he was a pretty well-known writer who'd written, he'd also written a famous movie and he'd written some books. But at the time he was an unknown to me because I didn't recognize his name. Um, and so the few times I've had the recommend, they haven't been from produced name writers. They were basically from unknowns. You know, they were writers that I didn't recognize their names. Yeah, they had a great voice. Um, they had 
material that was in the wheelhouse of the studio I was working for. So it was in that genre, it was in that budget range, it was the kind of thing they were, they were looking for. When I was working for Miramax, which was headed by Harvey Weinstein at the time, the Weinstein brothers, it was known that Harvey liked to shoot in Italy. So any material that was set in Italy was to be considered higher, <laughs> you know, it was to be given more attention. And so in one case, I actually had a development executive give me a book and say, this is set in Italy, Harvey loves Italy, he's looking for another thing to shoot in Italy, he just shot Gangs of New York with Scorsese there, and so I really want you to give this a good evaluation and hopefully you'll like it. And I actually asked her, I'm like, do you want me to just give it a consider, you know, even if it sucks, you know, like, help you out here? And she's like, no, 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 I want you to give us your honest opinion. And I read it and it wasn't good enough. And so I passed on it. And I don't know what happened after that, but she probably wasn't happy with me. <laughs> it's all about the material. So, sure. and I just didn't think the material was there. Yeah, you don't know anything really. That's good. Unless you recognize the name. So yeah, the reader gets no information going in. They may see uh, a cover letter. They may see an email history, maybe, but not always. So if they happen to see an email history, they may know a little bit about the, you know, this is what the agent has written back and forth with the development executive before they actually send the PDF. So the reader may see that, but they probably won't because it's all about the material. Is this material strong enough? You know, if it's coming from Aaron Sorkin, you may give a little bit more weight to that because Aaron Sorkin can get a film made. He can write a greenlit movie, but you're still evaluating on the writing. So if Aaron Sorkin has written something that's not right for your company or just isn't at the level of quality that would get a recommend or a consider, if that reader's being honest, they're gonna pass on it. You shouldn't do that, you mm -hmm. shouldn't have any bias. And in my experience, I almost never knew the backstory of a particular piece of material. We have a structural tool called the BMOC, which is beginning, middle, obstacle, and climax. These are the four points in any great story where the hero's asked to change. And they're in every great story, whether it's Star Wars, or The Fault in Our Stars, or uh, uh, um, Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift. And these four points also work inside every scene. They're in every action sequence, this BMOC. So this rhythm of story is present in all great stories. So we have a lot of novelists now. And they aren't even novelists who want to necessarily translate their story to television or movies, although a lot of them are. But this BMOC pattern trans forms their novels. It transforms their story. We have a music video guy who's come in to study with us because this BMOC form works in six minute music videos too. So, and so do all the tools of structure and suspense. So it's all one thing. I mean, I know that sounds very counterculture-y, but it is. It's all one thing. It's just one rhythm. Just like a pop song, no matter how cool or hipster, has a chorus, a bridge, a verse, structure, right? Kanye does, and you know, uh, Ry Cooter does. They all do, why? Because the human brain is wired 
to have a certain set of beats in any narrative form. And that's what we talk about, this BMOC structure. It works always. Bad stories, by the way, don't have this. And that's part of why they're bad. Most movies are bad. Most television is bad. And it's applying the tools properly that makes part of what makes the stories great. It's simple, but unless you're conscious of it, you won't do it. If you don't have good news, bad news, raising stakes, and, and, and uh, uh, ticking clocks, on every page of your story, your story's gonna be boring. But hardly anyone teaches that. Uh, and being conscious of how those tools work is how you start putting them on every page. And by the way, these suspense tools work in drama, they work in romantic comedy, they work in every genre, and they work in television too. So each page of a script has to have those elements? It's better if it does, yes. If you go and look at a Tarantino script, or you go and look at a Chris Nolan script, or you go and look at a Lynn script, you will see on every page, once you've been shown it, that every page has ticking clocks, every page has good news, bad news, every page has raising stakes. A lot of them have other suspense tools too, but writers are often unaware of this consciously. They don't build this into their stories when they write them. So just being aware that this is how, and they're cheap tricks, by the way. It's good news, uh, uh, I'm giving you 20 bucks. Bad news, I'm slapping you. Uh, ticking clocks is just a bomb, a, a bomb ticking down. It's a gun pointed at someone. These are not sophisticated tricks, they're simple. But the greatest artists use them in all of their best work. You've never seen a Tarantino script that didn't have three or four pointed guns in nearly every scene. It's cheap, and it works like a charm. It entertains, and that's why we also see these in television. Breaking Bad is nothing but a series of excruciating suspense devices. So excruciating, I couldn't even get Ceci to watch it. And when you sit down to watch Breaking Bad, you often have to stop because it's so repellently uh, tension-making, but that's what makes it great. Well, the two big things are, one is a passive lead character. I see that quite a bit. Uh, I see it over and over. Um, their lead character has a bunch of people coming at them and doing things, you know, saying, oh, you should do this, and he goes, okay, and he does it. It's, it's got, if it doesn't come from within the character, then you've got no train, you've got no choo-choo, pulling the train. It's not pulling the story train. What you've got is a caboose pushing it. That doesn't work, okay? You need to pull it and going somewhere. And uh, I see that a lot, just with this passive lead characters. And the other thing is um, either no conflict or very lowercase conflict, where people are, say if it's TV, people are flipping through channels and they watch something for five, six seconds. If there isn't deep conflict that's popping off the screen, they're gonna keep flipping. They're flipping past your show, okay? So you like conflict, you know? When you watch TV, you like it. Put it in your script. The, one of the reasons it's difficult is because in real life, people don't like conflict. If you're a nice person, okay, you don't wanna yell and argue with people and you don't want to hurt people's feelings, okay? But in real life, that's great. 
in a script, that's boring. That's just really boring. <laughs> okay? So let the conflict go. Okay? Let it go into that script. Put it in there and then it will jump off the page when people read it. Got to have a passive lead character and not enough conflict. I see those two things all the time. And the other thing that I see is people are safe. Um, uh, I have a professional comedy writers group and people apply to it and uh, we've had like a thousand people apply to this group and there's only 20 people in it. So it's, you know, we always select certain people to be in it. It's uh, most of whom are professional or they're showrunners and they write for them shows. And if they're newer writers, they're good and they're on their way. And I get people applying to the group, you know, perfectly nice people, people who send their script and they have screenwriting degrees you know, sometimes multiple degrees in, in writing and theater, and everything in their script happens at exactly the right time. The exciting incident, the first act break, the midpoint, the third act, uh, and all these story threads are perfectly correct. And I don't give a crap because they were so busy being correct in their form, they haven't put any spark of madness into the script. They haven't put anything quirky and personal you know, and it's not in there. It's like, forget all this stuff you learn and just let it pour out. Just allow your craziness, your weirdness, your quirkiness to be poured into that script. That's the other mistake I see is people, they're, they're holding back. We want, this is show business, okay? This is the one business where there's nothing wrong, okay? You can let these characters say weird things, crazy things, politically incorrect things, mean things, stupid things anything. You have the license to do an infinite number of things. Do it. <laughs> There's a way to give a note. Um, your job when you give notes is to help the writer tell the story they're trying to tell, to help them tell it better. Uh, you say, hey, this character is coming off as this. Is that what, is that what you meant? And they're like, oh, no, 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 I meant to be the way. They go, oh, well, it's coming off because of this. And you tell them and they, they're grateful. They're like, oh, I didn't realize that. You know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, from little things like I was giving notes to one person and he described, a, he described a character as elderly, this elderly character. And then in the next paragraph, he called him 50 years old. <laughs> yeah, see, you're laughing. Um, and a lot of people at the table were, you know, around 50. And he's host. so I said, you know, when you say elderly, we're thinking, you know, and you'd say 50, right. and he goes, well, isn't that, he was a very young writer. And he says, wasn't that, wasn't that elderly? And like, all the people they were like, no, you know? And I said, the reason this matters is because A, it's a little confusing. You, we just want, you want clarity in the script. And B, if somebody who's reading this, you know, who could hire you is 50 and you call them elderly, it's just, <laughs> why create trouble, right? So there's little notes like that. And <laughs> but I was working on a show I came to work one day and there was a writer who was walking out with their stuff in a box and they had just been let go. And it was like, ooh. And we didn't ask the executive producer anything. We didn't, you know, but, but he said, he's a really nice guy. But he said, she didn't know when to stop defending a pitch. In the room, she was a perfectly nice woman. Everybody liked her. But when you're in the writer's room at a sitcom, there's a bunch of writers there and you'll pitch an idea. The executive producer said, oh, we need this in this scene. And you'll pitch an idea. And the executive producer will say, oh yeah, that's great. Let's write that. 
or they'll say, he'll say, oh, that's almost not quite, and other people will pitch in, and they'll pitch something, pitch in, and like three or four pitches later, based on your pitch, you come up with a solution in the script, and you, and you write it. Or the exec producer will say, no, you should move on, okay, because it's their job to know what's in the show. The exec producer says that, and you don't want to have discussions about it. And she kept defending. She goes, well, she kept coming back to it and goes, well, you know, if you did the thing I say, and it's like, well, <laughs> It's, it just wastes time and it puts, makes the executive producer feel bad because they've got to keep saying no. So he eventually just let her go. So I learned from that. That was in my career. Um, when you're given a note, like no, by your boss, okay, take the note. You know. Also sometimes there's what's called, I don't know if you've heard of the concept, the note behind the note. Yeah, it's sometimes there's something under the note that is not clear, so you have to clarify the note for somebody, you know. But it's your job, if you're giving notes to professionals, it's your job to, to explain the note until you see the light go on in their eyes, okay. That's your job to make them understand the note, you know. And maybe your note is a great note, but it's not the right note for the story they're trying to do. But when I'm working at these meetups with uh, newer writers and stuff like that, you take into account that they're new, you know, and I've seen a million scripts and I've solved a lot of script problems and they haven't seen those yet. You know, so you're just trying to say, hey, this problem in your script has been solved in a couple of ways by doing this and this and how does that feel? And when you're giving the note, you can't be attached to the note. If it's not, if it's not a professional situation, if you're not their boss or whatever, you can't be attached to it. You can't get upset if they don't take your note. I mean, it's not about you, okay? It's about the writer and their script. So. There's some really fun writers at these meetup groups. There's some very talented uh, people of, of, of all ages, you know, and it's great that they can come together right. and, and see their, their stuff come to life. It's great that the over 50 ones actually can get out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I'm so glad they can make it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I've written and I can't get up. 